Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Andy Anders, fresh off of Ohio State's biggest win of the season, a top 10 victory over Penn State. And yet, that almost feels like the page two story right now because everybody's talking about what's going on up north. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a general interest from the Ohio State public about this uh, sign-stealing scandal. We'll get more into it later on in the show. But, uh, I mean, let's not skip past what was a great win for Ohio State Saturday. And you've called it all season. This is a defensive-driven team, Dan. I mean, just how much the defense dominated in this game, uh, took control of it, and despite... You know how close it was for much of the second half, a one score final score line really never felt like Penn State was a threat to win this game after they had the scoop and score called back early on. Just that's how oppressive the uh, Ohio State defense was in this game. Yeah, we talked a couple weeks ago about how at that point I felt comfortable saying this was a defensive driven team this year. And now I feel really comfortable saying that this is a defensive driven team this year. I almost inclined to save it. This might even be the best defense in the country. I don't. I, I'm not going to go quite that far yet and say that it actually is because I mean, Penn State's defense is still really good. Michigan's defense is still really good. Georgia's defense is really good. I, I'm not going to say that right now, but I do think that this defense has has proven that it is elite. That it is legit. Uh, and I mean, you talk about that. The fact that even though Ohio State never pulled away in that game. It also never really felt like Ohio State was in danger of losing that game. I mean, probably the tensest moment in that game was probably the sequence in the third quarter when Ohio State goes for it on fourth down, gets stopped. Then it forces a free and out, but then the punt hits Lorenzo Styles Jr. Penn State gets the ball back at midfield. I think that was probably the one moment in the game where I'm like, okay, like, is this about to get away from Ohio State? Are we going to be talking about these situational football errors? And is that going to be the story of the game? But then again, the defense stepped up. And that's just what the defense did all day. And, you know, even Ryan Day said it after the game, there was only one drive a bunch of the defense played poorly. It was the last drive of the game. And Ryan Day said, I don't put that on them because the game really should have been in hand at that point. If Jaden Fielding had made the field goal, it would have been a free score game and the game would have effectively been over. If Ohio State could have gotten a first down or two, it could have run out the clock and Penn State's offense would have never been back on the field. So if you take that drive out before that last drive, Penn State was 0 for 17 combined on third downs and fourth downs. It, it finished the game 1 for 16 on third downs. ESPN stats and info looked it up. That's the worst third down conversion rate by any AP ranked team in any game in the last 10 years with a minimum of 15 attempts. So I think that stat right there, first and foremost, tells you how good the defensive performance was on Saturday. Because we, we, we talked about it early in the season about this being a bend but don't break defense. Uh, we've seen games where Ohio State hasn't given up many points, but they've kind of let teams bleed the ball down the field before making a stop. But on Saturday, it was just a straight-up dominant defense that really wasn't letting Penn State do anything. 
Yeah, and I think what kind of gets lost in the shuffle is that we've seen this Ohio State defense grow throughout the year, right? And I think this was kind of a peak moment for them. When you talk about how against Notre Dame, Notre Dame strung some drives together, but it was more of that bend but don't break style. And I think, you know, because of how the overall success has been of this defense, they have still yet to allow an opponent to score more than 17 points. And the overall success of this defense kind of overshadows the just how much they've also grown as the year has gone on this was the best game of the season easily for the defensive line I thought uh the secondary and you know I don't think they've had a bad game this year but they had their best game against Penn State also and Cody Simon uh, also had a marquee performance fresh off an eight tackle day against Purdue there's it was a complete defensive performance Dan and you can't really give player of the game defensively to any one player and Ohio State didn't even try as we saw uh, all 11 guys defensive player of the game per Ohio State's uh, Twitter or they, they played more than 11 there was really 12 13 14 even guys that made a meaningful impact in this game but needless to say again this was a holistic defensive dominant performance from Ohio State and I think uh, I said it after the game kind of going off what you said I think they're easily a top three defense in the country with Michigan and Georgia and they might not be two or three uh, whether that's the case I think will bear out over the course of the season yeah I, I don't disagree with Ohio State's decision to give it to the entire defense I think that is a very accurate reflection of the game it was not you know one guy dominating the entire game it was everybody at all three levels executing throughout the game we at 11 warriors gave the defensive player of the game award to jt to Amolowau, and i still stand by that because much like we saw a year ago with jt when the game was on the line against penn state he stepped up he made two of the biggest plays of the game and he spent most of the game going up against Olu Fashanu. I thought they might put him against the right tackle for most of a game to try to get him the easier matchup. But they had him going up against the projected top five pick, Olu Fashanu, for most of a game. And JT was winning his share of battles, especially late in the game. And so we, we've talked about it the last few weeks. We've really seen this growth here in October with JT. I think, you know, this was really the third game in a row where I think JT played at an elite level. and. We talked about after the Notre Dame game, too, but he just, I don't know what it is, but there's just something about him that the bigger of a stage, the bigger of a moment, the better he plays. That's the kind of player he is. That's uh, what Jim Knowles said. You know, that's what the great players do, right? They make their biggest impacts. And slowly but surely, JT is kind of seen that sack production that was lacking early in the year consistently last year I mean uh, he only had one tackle in this game it was a sack but the other quarterback hit that forces an incompletion on fourth down uh, now up to four sacks this season which is more than he had last year and all of it has come since the what since the Maryland game yep. right um, so there is it's been a big surge of late for JT and he had I mean it's, it's almost a meme at this point fourth quarter JT against Penn State he's the guy you want out there but someone or some other people we should give specific credit to here Dan on the show uh, from Saturday are Jordan Hancock and Jermaine Matthews Jr. Uh, both of those guys really really impressive filling in for Denzel Burke one of the top corners in the country and who we think might be the best player on this defense 
out Saturday uh, after going down with an injury the previous week and a guy that you hope to get back soon. But man, uh, first off, Jordan Hancock versatility to almost never come off the field and to be constantly sliding between two very different positions. I think it's underappreciated just how different it is. Nickel, slot corner, whatever you want to call it, because it's a little different than obviously what Sonny does in that role. And then sliding out to play outside corner uh, also at times in that game and made plays from both areas. Had a really nice blitz to get a stop against a run tackle for loss uh, from that nickel spot. Also made plays in the open field at corner. And then Jermaine Matthews Jr., man, a freshman to perform in that spot didn't flinch. I mean, he had a really solid open field tackle against one of Penn State's big physical tight ends that were giving Ohio State some uh, problems. And I, I just think it, it was that it was he doesn't know what he doesn't know yet, right? For it was what Knowles said previously that the moment wasn't too big for him because he all it almost looked like he didn't realize the moment should be too big for him. Like he didn't look like a freshman out there in that situation. He looked like a guy that was just confident in his abilities and had a really nice PBU on a uh, downfield shot that they took against him in press coverage. There's there's no bigger gut check for a corner than one-on-one. They throw it 40 yards down the field on you and you come in and break it up. So was really impressed with the way Jermaine Matthews played, equally if not more impressed with the way Jordan Hancock played on Saturday. Yeah, when you talk about this being the best performance of the season, the most impressive performance of a season for the defense, I think it starts with that right there. Because for the first six games of a season, I think we would both agree Denzel Burke was Ohio State's best defensive player. And Ohio State did not have its best defensive player and still had played an absolutely dominant game against a top 10 team. And so I think that's the thing to me that's most impressive about it. Because last year, quite frankly... When that cornerback room got hit with injuries, they would be in big trouble. They, they, they just they they didn't have the kind of depth they have now. I think now you're in a position now where you feel like, all right, we we got four guys now: Denzel Burke, Davison Igbenosin, Jordan Hancock, Jermaine Matthews. We feel good about it, corner. We feel good that these guys can play in any game, and they're going to rise to the occasion. And so uh, you got to give a lot of credit to Tim Walton with the, the growth we've seen in that room from last year to this year. Um, you know, I think, you know, Jermaine Matthews, it kind of reminds me of watching Denzel Burke two years ago when he was a freshman and just not looking like a freshman out there, looking like a guy who's ready for a moment, ready for the big stage, has a very natural confidence. And I think I think when when you play with that kind of confidence, it rubs off on your teammates to where they're confident in you. And so I think uh, certainly Jermaine Matthews is a guy who I think everyone feels really good about having out there. Jordan Hancock's a guy who I, I think you talk about growth over the course of a season. He might be the best example of that because, you know, you think back to early in the season, you know, you think back to when they played Western Kentucky and that was his first game really playing a lot of reps in that uh, slot role. And he had some struggles in that game. He was going up against Malachi Corley, one of the best slot receivers in the country. And he had some struggles in that game, but we've seen him get better and better every week. And honestly, I came out of, Saturday's game feeling like when Denzel Burke is back that Jordan Hancock should be the starting nickel and that's not a knock on Sonny Styles. as we talked about before I it almost felt Saturday like Sonny's role was a bit more streamlined as they had talked about back in the spring and he was playing a lot more in the box he had a great sack on a blitz I continue to think 
that is where Sonny is at his best. When he's playing in the box, when he has a chance to make plays around the line of scrimmage. And I continue to think he can be very valuable in that role. But I also think that Jordan is more natural in terms of slot coverage. And we also saw Jordan make some great plays against the run against Penn State too. And so I I think when Jordan first got into that role, I felt like he's just a situational guy that you're going to put in there in the past situations. And now it feels like Jordan's a guy you can put in there on any down and, and you can really trust him. Well, yeah, what shocked me about the usage Saturday, and it was something that definitely didn't backfire on Ohio State because of Jordan's skill set, as you said, was just how much he was on the field specifically in the slot against 12 personnel. Uh, when Penn State rolled with two tight ends, he wasn't swapped out as much for Sonny as I expected, and I think you expected going into this game, but it didn't serve a noticeable setback for Ohio State in the box. And I think you're right when you say that Jordan should be the guy that gets the starting reps. Not that there aren't situations to play Sonny. It's not a knock on Sonny. Sonny's a super talented player. But I think that the gap between Sonny and Jordan in terms of coverage is greater than the gap between Jordan and Sonny in the box. You know, Jordan is a much better coverage option and Sonny's better in the box. He does more around the line, but Jordan is strong in those situations too. And he showed that on Saturday. Uh, So I think I am with you, Dan, that Jordan is the guy now that I think should be the starter there, should be relied upon a little bit more there. Not to say there aren't times to play Sonny again and not to say he's not an amazing player, but Jordan, his versatility And that coverage ability is just such a weapon for the defense uh, that, you know, you want to make more and more use of it. Um, Speaking of a guy that is in competition to be in more of a starting role now, Cody Simon had another impressive outing, kind of referenced it earlier, continues to see more usage in there with steel um, Steele kind of had a resurgent game against Penn State, I thought, after some rough weeks. Looked good tackling in the open field. There was a key third down scramble from Drew Aller that he stopped. Um, actually, it was a second down scramble set up a third down. Regardless, he looked strong out there, but Cody, five tackles and 19 snaps, um, still has a great case to be the starting will linebacker. Uh, Dan, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I mean... I- Honestly, right now, I, I kind of said it last week. I'd say it again. Like, I would honestly say that I think Cody Simon should be starting right now. The level that he's playing at, he had five tackles and just 19 defensive snaps on Saturday. So I think he's just playing at a really high level right now. It kind of goes back to, to almost the conversation we were having of Sonny, too, that with, with Cody and Steele, I wonder if to really maximize those guys' ability, if there should be a little bit more of a situation specific rotation with those guys rather than right now where it seems to be okay steel you go play a drive cody you go play a drive and i know i know jim Knowles kind of likes that consistency not subbing a ton and so i think that has a lot to do with it and granted this is nitpicking because the defense just played a phenomenal game they've been great all year and so this is just little nitpicking thoughts ideas not you know you know all in all, the defense has been fantastic. And so I think at this point, like if you're an Ohio State fan, you should be trusting Jim Knowles 
to make the right decisions because so far this year, you know, he he's, you know, they've, 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 they've won every week. The defense has done its job every single week. And so, uh, you know, again, it's just nitpicking, but I do wonder, cause I think it was last week, but I asked Jim Knowles about Cody and Steele, and he mentioned that he thought, you know, Cody was better against the run, but Steele was better against the pass. And so, you know, should Cody be getting more of those first and second down reps, but should Steele be subbing in still in those situations in the third down situations? We haven't seen them do a lot of that, but I, I still think that that, you know, you know, if they're not going to do the, you know, put Sonny in it, Will, that I had suggested before, I think that would be another option, too, of, you know, getting Cody in there for more of those running plays and getting Steele in there for more of those passing plays, or at least when you think they're going to pass the ball. I, I don't know that I necessarily expect to see that happen, but it's just a thought based on the fact that Jim Knowles himself has identified that those two guys have different strengths. No, I agree that there's definitely different uh, situations to use those guys, and Steele is, I, and I agree with Knowles' assessment, right? Steele a little stronger against the pass, Simon a little stronger against the run. I, I think what makes this important is, to me, Cody's skill set's going to be much better suited against a certain team up north that Ohio State is playing here in a month. When you talk about the way that Michigan has beaten Ohio State the last couple of years on the ground, that really physical attack, strong offensive lines, big tight ends, uh, getting downhill in the run game. I think Simon is much better suited against that. He's a little stronger, a little better instinctually against those running plays and specifically between the tackles, stacking, shedding, doing the things that a linebacker needs to do to hinder those kinds of running plays. So uh, I, I would like to see maybe a little more dependency on clear running downs. We see Cody sign then clear passing downs. We see steel chambers. Now, Jim Knowles, another part of that is you don't want to tip your hand, right? With maybe what scheme you're running defensively. Uh, but I think both are good enough that you can still have the full playbook, your full calls at your disposal. It's just maybe match personnel, match down and distance a little more to who you have on the field. Now, flipping to the other side of the ball, certainly Marvin Harrison Jr. was the star for Ohio State against Penn State. One of the best performances of his career, catching 11 passes for 162 yards and a touchdown. Second year in a row, he's gone huge against Penn State as he had 10 for 185 in 2022. And I think this was a performance that really reinserted his name into the Heisman Trophy conversation. You look at what he has done over the past six games. He has gone over 100 yards five times in the past. I mean, in, in, those, in those five games, he, three of those games have been 160 plus yard games. He's gone over 160 in two of the last three games alone. He also has six touchdowns in, in, in that six-week span. And so you just look at what he's doing. I think Saturday was a great reminder of why Marvin Harrison Jr. is not just the best wide receiver in college football, but might be the best overall player in college football. And there was so much hype about that matchup coming in with him versus Kalen King. And Harrison very clearly won that matchup. And no doubt about it. I don't know why Penn State thought it would be a good idea to just leave him man up. Look, Kalen King's a great they corner. Did it two, they did it two years in a row. 
They've done it two years in a row and it burned them both times. Marv had his career high single game receiving yards last year, 10 catches for 185. This year he has his career high for catches with 11, 162 and a touchdown. So like, I, I don't understand why they continue to think it's a good idea to just man up on Marvin. And the thing about man coverage too, is it opens up a lot of other things in the playbook to scheme him open. Uh, when you look at the mesh concept that they scored a touchdown on, that play isn't going for six against zone um, because you have the guys there to stop that route after the ball is caught. And it's more of a spot route for chunk yardage rather than you know going to the house. It's the same thing that hurt Don Brown's defense way back in 2018 when Ohio State just had much better receivers across the board against their corners. This wasn't an across-the-board thing. It was a Marvin Harrison is the best receiver in all of college football, and you're going to exemplify that by playing press man against him. Um, really took control of the game late, especially with that touchdown that kind of helped seal Ohio State's win. Also caught... Uh, his last, I believe, seven targets it was after kind of a rough stretch, rough wall in the middle of the game where he had a drop where they there was just, it just seemed off between him and McCord, and then they caught fire at the end. Uh, Marvin continues to be, I think, you know, the best receiver and has a case now for the best player in college football. It helps, too, that Michael Penix struggled this week uh, against Arizona State, only a 15-7 win for Washington in that one. He was the odds-on favorite. Actually, minus odds, rare to see, middle of the year for the Heisman. Now he's second behind McCarthy on DraftKings, J.J. McCarthy, Michigan's quarterback. But Marv is in the thick of the race, and I think the best case right now for a non-quarterback uh, when you talk about Heisman candidates with Brock Bowers' injury. So there's a, certainly a case to be made, and the Buckeyes weren't afraid to make it between uh, Ryan Day and Kyle McCord giving Marvin some endorsements after the game. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just Penn State's defensive identity is like they just they play man coverage. I mean, Marvin identified that during the week. And honestly, when I heard Marvin identify that during the week, I'm like, I think he's going to have a big game. Like, even though Penn State had come in, Penn State came in allowing less passing. They actually are still for the season allowing less passing yards per game than Marv had by himself in that <laughs> game. So what Penn State does defensively works against the vast majority of college football offenses. But when you're going against the number one receiver in the country, you have to make adjustments. And it didn't seem like Penn State did that well enough. Albeit, Penn State still held Ohio State 20 points. So, you know, Penn State didn't play terribly on defense in this game. Uh, it certainly didn't play terribly on run defense in this game as it held Ohio State to only 1.9 yards per carry. But I think it just speaks to how good Marvin Harrison Jr. is that if you don't, if you don't specifically game plan to take him out of the game, he is going to kill you. And, and, and we've seen that time and time again with Marvelous Marv, Route Man Marv, or as Gus Johnson would say, Maserati Marv. Maserati Marv. Yes, I, I think... You need to sustain this level of production if you're Marvin, if you really want to make a case for the Heisman. I mean, really, in terms of numbers right now, still not on the trajectory that you need to contend for that award as a receiver. But 160-yard games, if you play a 13-game schedule, they make the Big Ten title, say. If you were to average that, that's a pace of 2,000 yards, which would definitely be enough to warrant that award. Um, now, Marvin isn't going to get to that average 
unless he does something completely insane down the stretch. But uh, some more 150-yard games are what's going to be required to really make a case for him, uh, kind of sustain a pace that can get you at least above 1,500, 1,600 yards receiving. Uh, and then you, you kind of have the statistical backing to go for that award. He's already obviously kind of the whole thing Ohio State's offense centers around. So if they do go 13-0, and win a Big Ten title, it's going to have a strong case built in that in terms of value for him, it's just you've got to get the numbers. Moving on, though, I mean, the one guy that Ohio State was able to rely on a little bit outside Marvin to move the ball Saturday was Cade Stover. Four catches for 70 yards, had a had probably the best catch of the day, snagging it off the helmet of a Penn State linebacker there going downfield on a seam route, picked up 30 yards on that play for Ohio State, and really just had a another game where they were able to target him in big moments. He continues to get open. He continues to make plays on the ball. And on Marvin's touchdown, sucked up two defenders with his crossing route to free up Marvin's. Now on pace for... Kate Stover is now on pace to break Billy Anders' record. No relation there, unless it's a, a distant uncle that we don't know about for me. Uh, but 671 yards is the record. He's on pace for almost 800 yards, did the numbers yesterday on the season. More than 790 receiving yards. 797 would be the exact number rounding up. Dan, what what is impressing you about Kate Stover these days? Yeah, I mean, that that's what's impressing me about Kate Stover <laughs> is that he's he's putting up numbers that we've never seen before from an Ohio State tight end. I mean, you talk about Brock Bowers being hurt. Kate Stover has a legitimate chance to win the Mackey Award, which I don't think anyone was predicting going into the year. I certainly don't think they were predicting that going into last year. I mean, this is a guy who almost moved to linebacker a year ago. And now I I think he's either the second or third best receiving tight end in the country. But Brock Bowers is number one. It's between Cade Stover and Colorado State's Dallin Holker for number two. But, you know, this guy has become an elite receiver at that tight end position he in and, and, and he's become i mean in my mind right now like he he's become a top five player on this ohio state team he i mean he, you know with Emeka buka being out the last couple of weeks he's clearly been ohio state's second best offensive player and he has played an integral role in the success of an offense that you know, the, the offensive line is not what it's been in past years the running game has not had any consistency you know Kyle McCord has had his ups and downs but the two constants in the offense this year as you mentioned have been Marvin Harrison Jr. and Kate Stover and you 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 mentioned the records you mentioned the pace Marvin's on like we both easily agree like this is the least explosive offense of Ryan Day's tenure by far yet it's very realistic that Marvin Harrison Jr. could break a school single season receiving record and that Kate Stover could break the receiving record for a tight end. And so those two guys individually are having phenomenal seasons in spite of the fact that we have not seen Ohio State's offense reach that same level that we have in past seasons. Right, and I do think you're starting to see Ohio State lean into the passing game a little bit more as the running game continues to struggle, as Marvin Harrison and Cade Stover. And Emeka, when he's been in there, hasn't certainly hasn't had a bad year, 300 yards in five games. And I think when he comes back, that gives you that extra option to go to through the air 
as McCord continues to try and gain that consistency, gain that. Because it still just feels like McCord, I still think it can all click for him at some point and really this become a prolific passing offense all around. It's going to depend on the big three being healthy now that have kind of developed for Ohio State with Harrison Stover and Abuka when he comes back. And when that all comes together, I think this passing offense could really be something special and they're going to need it because this, like you mentioned, this run game continues to struggle. Um, 1.9 yards per carry against Penn State. It's not acceptable. I know they have the, now the number four rush defense in all of college football, but you you need those chunk gains on the ground to help set up and not be one-dimensional with the passing game, be able to convert short yardage, do the things that you know running games do for an offense, even one that's going to be more pass-heavy. So, Dan, do you think the Buckeyes made a mistake by not using Dallin Hayden at all against Penn State? I do think they made a mistake by not using Dallin Hayden at all against Penn State. I think, you know, he has better vision than Chip Trainum and better burst than Mayan Williams. And I think that combination we saw it against Purdue made the running game look better. And granted, Penn State is a much better defensive team than Purdue. So would Dallin and Hayden have had the same success against Penn State? I don't know. I mean, I'll say this, especially after rewatching the game. The biggest problem with the run game against Penn State, as it has been most of the year, is the blocking just wasn't there. I mean, but it, it, in the first half, they actually looked decent. Like, Mayan got some runs going. They looked pretty good. In the second half, they just weren't moving anyone off the ball. I mean, every, every time, there was just nowhere for the running backs to run. And so, it, it starts with that period, even when Travion Henderson comes back. The, the run blocking has to be better if this run game is going to get better. And at, at this point, at seven games into the season, I mean, we can clearly say the run game is the, the rushing offense is the weakness of this team. Ohio State currently ranks 94th in the country in yards per carry, which is is simply not good enough if you're at Ohio State. And so uh, the, the run game is definitely the weakness of this team. You talk about that potential for everything to click with the passing offense. I am definitely more optimistic at this point that Ohio State's passing offense can still all click and come together and be an elite passing offense than I am in, in, in this rushing offense right now because we just aren't seeing any kind of consistent growth there. You know, they'll, they'll t- it, you know, it's like they'll take a step forward one week and then they take a step back. And granted, some of that has to do with who you're facing com- competition week to week, but seven games into the season for, you know, the running game to look as bad as it did in the second half uh, against Penn State. And granted, you know, especially later in the game, like Penn State, they're, they're, they're stacking the box. They figure Ohio State's going to run to try to bleed clocks. So they're, they're, they're selling out to stop the run. But 1.9 yards per carry is, is never going to be good enough. And this is the second time here in three games that Ohio State's been held under two yards per carry. And so, as we look at this next four game stretch going into that Michigan game and you think about what Ohio State needs to get better at to have a chance to go beat Michigan up in Ann Arbor, I think that's still very much number one on the list is that running game has to improve. Right. Like you said, it starts up front. I think that's the biggest issue and it's coming from everywhere. I think there's different guys every play that aren't getting the proper push that you need to get off the ball, get that movement. 
create some running lanes. Now, I've said in the past that Dallin Hayden can bring a unique style to this offense with his vision, with his north one-cut, north-south running style. But when it's not there, it's not there. I don't think there were a lot of plays in that second half I, I could point to and say, well, Dallin Hayden would have a better run on that play. You know, Mayan had 11 carries for 10 yards, less than a yard per carry. And so much of that was just the offensive line getting stonewalled or a guy slips through unblocked or, you know, particularly on the third and goal play that set up a fourth and goal Ohio State couldn't convert. You know, it was an unblocked safety blitzing off the edge that gets to the back, gets in the backfield and stops Mayan for a one yard loss. There's just a lack of it of growth, like you said, consistency in getting the improvements that this offensive line needs to run the ball. Where is it going to come from if we haven't seen it at this point in the year? It's hard to say. Now, we have seen teams in the past in college football turn key issues like this around uh, in the final month, but it's not common. And I, you know, every week I've said it, Every week that it doesn't get fixed, every week that they have rushing outings like this, it, the confidence dwindles more and more that it can get to the place that it really needs to be for that Michigan game if they're going to rely on it. You know, Otherwise, you're going to have to find another way to win that game like you did against Penn State. Um, maybe they don't need an elite rushing attack or even a good one to, to accomplish their goals, but it makes it a lot harder. Yeah, I mean, the good news is this, this Ohio State team has now proven in two big games against top 10 opponents that it can win without having a great day on offense. And that's simply a place that this team was not for the past several years. I mean, I thought about it during the Penn State game. I thought about it during the Notre Dame game. You'd see the offense go free and out, not be able to get anything going. And I thought, man, if this was last year, Ohio State would be getting run off the field right now. Because, you know, last, last year it was like, if you had a one-score lead and Ohio State had to punt and then you're giving the ball back to the other team and you're putting that defense out on the field, it's like, up oh, here we go. Whereas this year, in that game on Saturday, it was like, even though Ohio State never quite pulled away in that game, it's like you always felt like the defense is going to do its job. They're going to stop them. They're going to get the ball back, back to Ohio State. Like, that's the way this defense is playing now where it's like you really now have the confidence that you just haven't had in this unit for a few years that they're going to make stops. They're going to make the plays Ohio State needs them to make to win the game. So that's the thing that I think you feel really good about coming out of this game. Now, it doesn't discount the fact that I think for Ohio State to achieve all of its goals, those being you know beating Michigan and making the college ball playoff and winning a national championship, I do think the offense has to get better. I don't, I don't think the offense is good enough right now for Ohio State to win a national championship. But like you talked about, and they, haven't, they, they were not at full strength on Saturday. They didn't have two of their most dynamic players in Travion Henderson and Emeka Buka. Kyle McCord is still a first-year starting quarterback. I mean, you think, think about C.J. Stroud two years ago. He was a lot better at the end of his first year than he was even at this point in the year. And so there's still plenty of time for Kyle McCord to continue to improve. Again, I, I think the ceiling of this offensive line right now is not elite. It's, it, it's, it's, it's more just good at this point. But there is still time for that to improve as well. And so I think, I mean, I still think 
the skill positions, wide receiver, tight end, running back, when they're operating at full force, Ohio State is a better group than anyone else in the country there. And so I still think the pieces are in place for this offense to, at a minimum, be good enough when paired with what I truly now believe is an elite defense for Ohio State to have a chance to achieve all its goals. It still has to all come together for that final stretch of a season. Good news is, I think Ohio State does now enter a stretch of four games where it does have some opportunity to work through some things, although of those four games, I think the toughest one is coming up this week against Wisconsin. Yep. Um, a Wisconsin team that I don't think either of us really fear can beat Ohio State, but still one that is the biggest challenge left in Camp Randall always uh, is a rocking atmosphere, especially at night. That's going to be a loud game. That's going to be a game where, you know, you, you can't afford to have that let down, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but hasn't really happened under uh, Ryan Day. But this is a familiar foe, of course. Luke Fickle uh, held the consecutive starts record at Ohio State until 2017 when it was broken by Billy Price. Uh, when it started 50 games in a row from 93 through 96 as a player playing nose guard, which is what I played in high school. I uh, never played that at Ohio State, of course, but uh, a little bit. Uh, Fickle was probably a little bit better than me in football. Uh, a little bit bigger than you. A little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. You know, I, I think he's taller than 5'10". Um, he uh, then went on and was a defensive coach for Ohio State for over a decade, coaching linebackers, co-defensive coordinator, interim head coach in 2011 after Tattoogate, uh, and then went off and had great success at Cincinnati, made the college football playoff, only group of five team ever to do that to this point. That'll be guaranteed starting next year, uh, but as far as the four-team playoff goes, I don't foresee one making it this year. So I think that Cincinnati team is going to go down as the only group of five team ever to make a the four-team college football playoff. It's a tremendous accomplishment. Also made another year six bowl there. Comes into Wisconsin, wins his first game as Wisconsin head coach at the guaranteed rate bowl against Oklahoma State. And has started to try and lay the groundwork to build a successful program in Madison and a program that is very much in transition from what we saw under Paul Christ. This is a team with a, that's trying to build a completely new identity on offense, uh, a team that brought in, I believe it was 15 transfers in the offseason, and you know one of the biggest ones at quarterback who is now hurt. But I, yeah, again, neither of us see much of a threat from this team, but definitely a program that might be on the rise under a head coach that now has a track record that Buckeye fans are familiar with. Yeah. In the interest of not putting words in my mouth, I'm not totally discounting this team as a threat. I mean, I That's mean, fair. this is Camp Randall's one of the toughest places to play in the country. This is Ohio State. This is Ryan Day is actually his first time coaching there because he joined the staff in 2017. Ohio State has not played there since 2016. So to say that I don't see any threat this weekend, I, I, I have not said that. I'm not, I've not said that, but I don't see any threat from this game. But I think I am more like where you were when we talked about this before the season in terms of confidence level going into this game in the sense that you you, you predicted going into the season that it was going to take a year for Luke Fickle and this new staff to really get things going there and that Wisconsin wouldn't come into this game in a place where it would really be 
ready to challenge Ohio State, upset Ohio State. And as I look at Wisconsin now, I, I think your evaluation of that was accurate because uh, I, I think, you know, this Wisconsin team is not bad, but I don't know that they're a team, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, that is good enough to upset Ohio State because first and foremost, as you mentioned, Tanner Mordecai is hurt. Uh, Braden Locke, who stepped in at quarterback, has completed just 51% of his passes. They do have a very good running back in, in Bray, Braylon Allen, who has already rushed for 704 yards on uh, 5.9 yards per carry this season. And we have seen Ohio State have a lot of success in recent years stopping those really good Wisconsin running backs, whether it be Braylon Allen last year, whether it be Jonathan Taylor, Monty Ball, guys like that in the past. But this is a different look Wisconsin offense in that they are not as committed to the run game as Paul Christ was. This is an offense that's going to spread the ball around a little more. I think if that passing game was operating at a higher level than it has so far this season, I would go into this game viewing it as much more dangerous than I think it is with a backup quarterback that hasn't had a ton of success throwing the ball. Uh, no, I agree. You know, uh, I think with Mordecai, there was uh, more, definitely more of a chance because he can make some plays. He's got the experience. Uh, lock with this offense, it, it just um, kind of takes a lot of the juice out of it, a lot of the wind out of the sails where, you know, Wisconsin might have had some more offensive threats to throw at the Buckeyes. Now, I think kind of going into this scheme a little bit more fickle, and I think, you know, fickle obviously is a defensive minded guy, came from a defensive background, had very good defenses at Cincinnati. What the sense for this was, you know, kind of the way Ryan Day hired Jim Knowles to be more of the head coach of the defense. That's the role Phil Longo serves on the inverse as kind of a head coach of the offense for Wisconsin in many ways. Uh, he comes from a pass-heavy background at North Carolina and Ole Miss, uh, really had a lot of those spread concepts brought with him and has tried to, you know, a lot of the transfer portal talent they brought in, including Mordecai, was to implement this new scheme and get it off the ground and running. Jim Knowles talked about it Tuesday. Uh, they have now... Off of all those runs they're going to do with Braylon Allen, they have passes to where you can't just sit on the run game as much anymore. He called them two-dimensional as opposed to one-dimensional last year in on the ground with the pass. So those that's kind of the new look for the Wisconsin offense uh, this year, but they lost a lot of their ability to do that, to threaten both dimensions when Mordecai went down with his broken hand. Yeah, I think... Even with this new scheme, I think without a doubt, this is this projects to be a much tougher test for Ohio State's run defense, which has looked a little bit more vulnerable than the past defense has this year. I would be surprised if Wisconsin is able to do a lot through the air against this Ohio State defense. I do think that they could have some success on the run. And, and like you said, because you mentioned, not necessarily that the talent in the passing game is better, but just because the scheme is harder to defend. And so I think this is a legitimate test for the run defense. I mean, Braylon Allen, you could certainly make a case that he's the best running back Ohio State has played this season 
Audric Estime from Notre Dame is certainly in that conversation as well. But uh, Braylon Allen is a really good running back. And so this will be a good test. You know, you've talked about, you know, the middle of that run defense, maybe being a little soft at times without having that true nose tackle. You know, we've talked about a rotation at linebacker. Uh, I think this is a definitely a test for those, these teams. I look at a guy like Tommy Eichenberg, who's I think has been solid this year, but maybe not as individually impactful as he was a year ago. This seems like the kind of game where you'd love to see Tommy like make a surge and really kind of reassert himself as a, as a star of his defense, because I think he's a guy in this game that you're going to need to be at his best to stop Braylon Allen. Right. And I do want to say, you know, as far as the nose tackle thing goes, yes, they, you know, they obviously still lack a true nose tackle. The personnel hasn't changed, but I've, Honestly, I thought this was the most impressive game I've seen from Ty Hamilton playing the one technique against Penn State, not to backtrack, but his ability to stack and shed, to plug holes. I mean, there was a play he made where he like manhandled Penn State center, just extend, find the back, shed, go make the tackle. Like That's classic defensive line play, but it was more than that. A lot of times he was able to just you know hold his own and set a new line of scrimmage for other people to make a tackle, which is so key at that nose, de- nose guard spot. Mike Hall also had a pretty good game doing those kinds of things, I thought. So I do think the nose tackle play is another thing about this defense that has improved, at least incrementally, as the year has gone on. Uh, and that's why I think you know Penn State ran the ball well one drive in this game. Nick Singleton broke off two nice runs, and that was it. They did not have hardly any success running the ball, and they have a, a good offensive line with Fashanu there at left tackle, a, a, a fully capable of running the ball, and that's how much of how they've established their kind of methodical offense on the year, right? They weren't able to get those chunk gains, a lot of runs of two yards or less that put them behind schedule, behind the chain, second and eight or longer in that game. Uh, so I did want to give that shout out, but you know, real quickly before addressing, yes, I agree. Would like to see a nice breakout 12 tackle day from Tommy, kind of like he had in multiple occasions last year. I, I think the role they've asked him to play is a little less aggressive, which is why we haven't seen some of those big tackle numbers as much this season. Um, he's served mostly as a captain of the defense, the guy that it's all a fulcrum on. And because Ohio State's defense has been less blitz heavy, less attacking this year as opposed to last season under Jim Knowles. Tommy's role has also, he's a little more stand back, be kind of the director of traffic than attack the line of scrimmage and go make tackles this year. Not that he isn't also doing that, not that that isn't part of his responsibilities at that Mike linebacker spot, but uh, I think with this Wisconsin team, it's probably going to rely even more heavily on the run now that uh, they don't have Mordecai anymore. That he's going to have an opportunity to kind of have a resurgent performance in this game, and you'd like to see it from him. Now, when you talk about Wisconsin, you usually think run game, and you also think defense. And I think especially with Luke Fickle being the head coach, you really think defense. But if you look at the statistics so far this year, Wisconsin's defense has been pretty average. Their numbers are pretty much identical right now to Maryland, who Ohio State played a few weeks ago. They're they're 40th nationally in total defense, which, if it holds, would actually be their worst ranking since 2005. They are 20th in scoring D, 29th in pass D, 64th in rushing defense. So maybe an opportunity for a run game to get a little bit of momentum this week. Maybe Ohio State will will need it a little bit. But I think when you compare Wisconsin to Penn State and Notre Dame, 
but the defense, the best defenses that Ohio State has faced this year. I don't think Wisconsin is at that same level. And so this is still going to be a challenge for the offense, especially because we have not seen this offense get to that point where it's putting up big numbers week in, week out. So I think this is still a test for the offense, you know, particularly when you look at who's left on the schedule between now and, and Michigan, Rutgers, Michigan State, Minnesota. You wouldn't expect any of those teams to pose a significant threat to o- Ohio State's offense. And so I think this is the best defense that Ohio State is going to face before Michigan. And so I think it's certainly an important game where you want to see the offense take a step forward. But when I think about predictions for this game, I would predict, unless they have a real post-Penn State letdown, that Ohio State's offense will have at least somewhat more success against Wisconsin than what we saw against Penn State. No, I agree. Uh, and this, uh, this defense does have some holes in it, uh, as we've mentioned with those numbers. And I think the talent discrepancy, too, for Ohio State is going to kind of bear out here a little bit. Um, you know, you really want to see them pick it up on the ground. And a key ingredient to that might be if, you know, this is finally the week we see him getting Travion Henderson back. That explosion out of Ohio State's top three backs between him, Mayan Williams, Chip Trainum. Averaging 2.7, 2.4, pardon me, 2.4 yards per carry more than the next best guy. Travion at 6.7 yards per carry, Chip at 4.3, and Mayan at 3.2 in that uh, discussion. There's just, he's been their best consistent chunk runner. He's been really their only home run threat thus far this year uh, in terms of the 61 yarder he broke off at Notre Dame and then doing some other big games on the ground. That would be a really good presence to have to maybe elevate this run game back a little bit just by in terms of getting him back. But also you need to see that next step from the offensive line. Really, I mean, they're running out of time to do it. This is you need to have these next four games. You need to make improvements every single week along this offensive line, real steps to be ready to take on Michigan and have a prayer of running the ball because that defense is really good at stopping it. Ryan Day said Tuesday that he is expecting Travion Henderson, Emeka, Buka, and Denzel Burke all back this week. Now, he said last week that they were hoping to get them all back, too. And so I think for us and probably most people out there listening, until we see that status report on Saturday, we're probably not going to put too much stock into Ryan Day saying he expects those guys back just because... You know, you, you don't know. It, it did sound like it's going to be somewhat contingent on those guys having a really good week of practice and and showing that they're ready to go. You never know. Again, there's there, there's sometimes a difference between being ready to play and actually playing if Ohio State wants to be cautious about reaggravating injuries. And so we will ultimately see on Saturday if those three guys are back. Certainly, you'd love to get them back in the lineup, get them going again. But I also think. Wisconsin's not such a big test that you're going to throw them out there if you're not confident they really are healthy and, and good to go. And so we'll see what happens with those three. One guy that we know isn't going to be available for this week and probably you know at least one more week after this is Devin Brown, uh, the backup quarterback who suffered an ankle injury on a red zone run against Penn State. And uh, this is an interesting situation now because 
we have not seen any other quarterback beside Kyle McCord or Devin Brown take a snap for Ohio State this year. So as long as Kyle McCord stays healthy and he's good, that's not a big concern because you know Kyle's going to play the vast majority of the snaps anyway. But there is now that question of if anything happens to McCord, who would be the next man up? My guess would be that it would be Tristan Gebbia, given that he does have starting experience at Oregon State. He's been around college football for a long time. Lincoln Keenholes, on the other hand, is just a true freshman who arrived in the summer. But we know there is a lot of excitement both within and outside the program for Lincoln Keenholes. And Ryan Day did not shoot down the idea that Lincoln Keenholes could potentially see some work in that same red zone package that they were using Devin Brown is. Now, would I bet on seeing Lincoln Keenholes come in the game for a red zone play this week? I would not, uh, because Ryan Day said himself that Lincoln Keenholes has not gotten a ton of reps in practice because most of those reps have gone to Kyle McCord and Devin Brown. And so I would be surprised if they throw another quarterback in the game just for a situational purpose. Now, if Ohio State is fortunate enough to take a huge lead in this game, they would certainly want to get those guys some reps. I would guess that's probably more likely to happen against Rutgers or Michigan State than it is to happen against Wisconsin. But certainly, you know, both of those guys now need to be ready to go because uh, one of them could be one play away from having to go in the game. Uh, yeah, I agree. And uh, Gebbia is a guy that uh, I think, is, yes, his experience wins out. And he, I mean, honestly, he looked good in the spring, some of the stuff we saw. Lincoln, I would like to see them test that red zone package with him at some point because I think he he's a super athlete. I mean, just all the stuff he accomplished in North Dakota, you know, being Mr. Football, but also being all state in basketball, being you know, one of the best baseball players in the state too. a really, really talented athlete and a guy that, you know, you bring that athleticism to the run game. I think it can do certain things uh, that, you know, as good or even better than Devin just as a runner in that package. Uh, but you've got to get to a point where also you trust his ball security in those situations. Even Devin fumbled going across the goal line against Purdue. We saw that Lincoln's you need to test that package out in a low leverage moment before you have the faith to use it in a high leverage moment. Uh, so if, if they're going to use it, find a time when you're up big in a game against one of these opponents and then maybe give it a test. But uh, for now, I wouldn't expect it to be used in any sort of high leverage situations. And I would expect Tristan to be the go-to behind Kyle as a true backup. Uh, if you know something were to happen that would, you know they need a guy to to fill in. So Dan, kind of coming to our the close of our score predictions here, uh, Buckeyes favored by fourteen and a half points over under forty three and a half. Uh, what do you see the Buckeyes covering in this game, and uh, what, what's your score if you got one? I am going to take a Buckeyes cover in this game. I'm going to go 31-10 Ohio State because as well as this Ohio State defense is playing, I just don't have a lot of confidence that Wisconsin is going to be able to do a whole lot with a, a backup quarterback. So I think as long as the defense continues to play at the same level that it's been playing at, uh, I, I don't see Wisconsin scoring a lot of points. I don't see Ohio State's offense scoring a huge number of points because Wisconsin's defense isn't bad, and we haven't seen Ohio State's offense really reach that that full gear yet. 
But I do think that Ohio State ultimately wins this game comfortably. It it is a if there if there's going to be a trap game spot on this schedule this year, this would be the one you would circle. But if you look at the track record under Ryan Day, trap games really haven't been a thing under Ryan Day. He's 34 and 0 against unranked teams. The last time Ohio State had a real trap game loss was against Purdue in 2018 in Urban Meyer's final season. And so I think this team will be ready to play. Now, it, would it surprise me if this game is like Penn State or Maryland or Notre Dame where, you know, there's some tense moments and it, it takes a while for Ohio State to get going and they ultimately, you know, have to pull away later in the game? No, it, it wouldn't surprise me. But I, I do feel like, you know, barring a major letdown, that Ohio State should be able to win this game decisively. Yeah, I think um, I agree. Ohio State cover um, the the start I can see in this game is something sluggish with you know the atmosphere in Camp Randall, some residual concerns on offense kind of linger. Uh, Kyle McCord's been a second half quarterback. I think Ohio State pulls away in due time in this game, exactly when that happens, whether it's from the gun, whether it's in the second quarter, whether it's in the second half is kind of the question I have. Uh, I think this defense continues to be dominant. I don't think Wisconsin gets in the end zone in this game. Uh, Lux its way into two field goals on offense, and I have 38-6 Ohio State. Damn. Andy's very confident in the very decisive victory this week. Now, we, we've gone almost an hour into a show, and we still have not really talked about the whole Michigan sign-stealing controversy. So let's get to that, because that's certainly the biggest story in college football right now, with Michigan under NCAA investigation for prohibited in-person scouting of games and using video to film opposing team signals. At the center of this investigation is Connor Stallions, who was uh, an analyst, or is it? is an analyst for the Michigan football program, but is currently suspended. Uh, a report came out on Monday that he bought tickets in his own name to 30 plus big 10 games over the last three years um, that he had distributed those tickets to other people. And allegedly that they were uh, filming the game uh, from their seats. Uh, the seats that he was buying were always behind the bench so that they could get a clear look at the team's signals uh one of those games that he had bought tickets for was actually this past week's ohio state penn state game he had bought tickets on both sides of a stadium for that game so if this had not come to light last week and connor stallions had not been publicly identified as uh the ringleader of this alleged operation last week uh they likely would have had spies in the stands uh watching ohio state and penn state of course be two biggest teams that Michigan has left on its regular season schedule. So uh, very much an Ohio State link to all this. Uh, the, the reports state that he has been doing this for the last three years. And so naturally, uh, Ohio State fans are going to look at that and look at the way the Ohio State-Michigan game went the last two years. And all of a sudden, if all of this gets proven to be true, those outcomes, uh, at least in the eyes of Ohio State fans, uh, may now have an asterisk on them. Right. And I, I, the next step in the reporting process here is to see uh, if 
those tickets were paid for or reimbursed by Michigan's football program. Um, whether Jim Harbaugh, whether Michigan's staff had knowledge of what Stallions was doing. Of course, lots of videos and photos that have come out as to that might help to prove, prove or show that conclusion, but still a hard thing to prove that, you know, a, Harbaugh had knowledge of it without some something concrete like a direct reimbursement for tickets, uh, things of that nature. Um, now, I I do think there's going to be penalties that come as a result of this because it, it's you know directly sign stealing to to win games against NCAA rules. When you talk about advanced scouting, sign stealing has been a thing in college football for a long time. Plenty of teams have some way of doing it, um, and especially from a sideline or at the game. But uh, again, the illegal part of this comes in when you're scouting ahead of time, sending um, staffers or coaches or the coaches are sending other people to go scout these signals and find them. Um, and I, again, I have a hard time believing a, a, a coach that with, with a $55,000 a year salary is paying for all these tickets himself, uh, without some kind of reimbursement for Michigan's program. So I'm very curious to see the outcomes of, uh, of those reports when they, when we do get that access and perhaps also access to stallions messages from his work phone. Um, and, and, and just, you know, there's going to be more reporting more to come out about this, but right now it, it looks very bad with what's already out there for Michigan. Yeah, I mean, if the allegations are true, I mean, first and foremost, very stupid by Connor Stallions to buy the tickets under his own name. Um, you'd think that someone with a military background uh, would maybe know how to be a little bit more covert with his operations than it seems Connor Stallions was. So, you know, that certainly, uh, you know, if you're looking for a smoking gun in this case, that certainly appears to be it there is allegedly video evidence of uh, someone sitting in his seat at a game uh, filming the opposing sideline as well which again as you mentioned uh, the in-person scouting aspect of this is prohibited by ncaa rules as is using video to actually film the signals you can observe them but you can't be you can't have a direct operation just to film the signals of of an opponent that that is prohibited. And so that's where, uh, you know, that that's where this falls on the side of NCA violations. We know sign stealing is a thing that's widespread throughout the sport. This is not the first time that a team has been stealing signs from an opponent, but it's the manner in which Michigan has allegedly done this, which leads to the potential for steep penalties. Now, like you said, there's a difference between saying, well, obviously Jim Harbaugh had to know about this and having actual proof that Jim Harbaugh did know about this. And that is where, you know, if you, you run that question of, is this going to be something that takes down Jim Harbaugh, that takes down Michigan, that leads to major penalties? Or is this going to be something where Connor Stallions is the fall guy and, and Michigan comes out of this relatively unscathed? One thing I've learned about the NCAA is that trying to predict what the NCAA is going to do in these situations is often a futile exercise. And so I I really don't know which way this is going to play out. I know there has already been some speculation out there that 
you know, penalties could be levied against Michigan as soon as this year, potentially impacting their college football playoff eligibility. I would say that I'm skeptical of that because the NCAA typically does not move that fast. I mean, the NCAA hasn't even penalized Jim Harbaugh for his other violations yet. He did serve a free game self-imposed suspension, but there's still a possibility that Michigan faces additional sanctions for those recruiting violations and lying to the NCAA that happened a year ago, or well, it actually happened in 2020 and the NCAA sent the official notice of infractions to them in January. And that case is still ongoing. And so do I really believe the NCAA is going to take super swift action here if it impacts this year's CFP? Not really, but it's certainly a cloud that hangs over Michigan right now. It's certainly a cloud that hangs over all the success Michigan has had over the last three years. And I do think in my mind, it, increases the likelihood that Jim Harbaugh is going to look for that NFL escape hatch at the end of the year. We've seen him flirt with it the last couple years. And I think there's always kind of been that idea of if the NCAA brings the hammer down on Jim Harbaugh, that could prompt him to want to wanna get out and, and go back to the NFL. And now this adding the possibility of even more severe sanctions against Jim Harbaugh in Michigan, you would think, maybe increases Jim Harbaugh's incentive to try to land an NFL job after this season. Right. And I'm not sure how much I lean into us seeing it, you know, all those flirtations in the past. It's going to depend what the sanctions are, right? And just how hard it gets cracked down on by the NCAA. Now, I, I really don't know what to expect. If there's been anything I've known in my short lifetime uh, watching the NCAA, it's that I you're, you're never going to be able to tell what, what exactly comes of any situation. Uh, they overreact. They underreact. There's just no way to know exactly what's going to come of this. Uh, I do know that, Dan, I, I do feel like this provided a substantial advantage on the field for Michigan the last few years. I don't think there's any escaping that. Um, the I now two things can be true. I do think Harbaugh has had his best teams that he's had at Michigan in terms of talent, in terms of staff, in terms of whatever it is. The last couple of seasons, they had teams that were capable of beating Ohio State, sign stealing or not. But the other thing that's true is that when you know what is being called on the opposite sideline. And you have literal video proof of Stallions standing next to coordinators at these games, talking with them as the signals are being relayed by the opposite sideline, figuring out what's being said, figuring out what's being called, and then you get to make your call knowing what the other team is calling. That is a massive advantage on a football field. This is one of, if not the most most tactical games in the world. And to know the plays the strategy that your opponent is implementing down to down you can call direct counters to all of it and uh it it does throw an asterisk on any game where this was fully implemented in my mind yeah i think realistically there's no way to to truly answer how much of an impact that had on games we don't know exactly how much michigan knew we don't know i mean there was a report last week 
that Ohio State knew this was going on and changed its signals before the Michigan game last year. That obviously didn't help. Now, that's not to say that Michigan didn't still infiltrate their signals and that that had an impact on the game. But I also don't, I don't think that this just all of a sudden gives Ryan Day a free pass for what happened the last two oh, years. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I've said it on the podcast before, and I will stick with what I've always said. I think vacating wins is stupid. I thought it was stupid when it happened to Ohio State. I thought it was stupid when it happened to Penn State. I thought it was happen- stupid when it happened to other programs. And I think it's stupid in this case, too. The games already happened. So to me, vacating those wins doesn't really change a whole lot. Now, you know, to me, like, if, if you're going to penalize them, like, you should penalize them for right now because there, there is evidence that this has been going on this year. And so if, if you have that evidence and you are prepared to take swift action, then you should. I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen because that's not typically the way the NSA operates. They typically drag their feet on this stuff and then act retroactively, like we saw with Ohio State back in the tattoo gate situation. So I think that's more likely to happen. I think it probably is likely that there's going to be some vacated wins and Big Ten championships in all of this if the NCAA ultimately feels it has enough proof that Michigan was. Uh, in in fact, running an illegal sign stealing operation, but you know, to me, from an, I don't know how much vacating wins or any of that changes what happens the last two years. I think if you're Ohio State, your your focus needs to remain, and I think based on the answers we heard on Tuesday, or the non-answers, I should say, we heard from Ryan Day on Tuesday that the focus does remain on beating Michigan this year. And I think if anything, this gives you less of an excuse to lose to Michigan again this year, because theoretically they should not, if this was an advantage that they had the last two years, they should not have that same advantage this year. Ohio state, certainly any signals it had used to this point in the season should not be being used against Michigan at the end of November, because if the evidence is true, if, if the allegations are true, then you could probably safely assume that Connor Stallions has had a spy at at least one Ohio State game this year. And so Michigan probably has some data already on what Ohio State signals are this year. And so I think the first thing you got to do if you're Ohio State is make sure that you're changing up your signals, making sure that the signals you're going to be using against Michigan are completely different than the signals that you have used so far this season but um you know to me i don't to me i i I don't know that it really changes the past uh but it it sure as heck if you're the big 10 uh every team in the big 10 certainly has a reason to want to snuff this out and to want to see michigan get penalized for it and based on the, the fact the amount of information that already has come out it seems like there's a very coordinated effort from the rest of the Big Ten to make sure the NCAA has all the information it needs about potential cheating by Michigan. Yeah, I don't know what purpose vacating wins has ever served because in every way that counts, those those teams still won those games. Um, it's just not 
not the paper anymore. You, you don't have a sheet of paper that says, says you want it in some record book somewhere, but everyone still saw the result. Everyone still knows who the better team was on that given Saturday. So I too have never been a proponent of vacating wins. But let me throw one thing at you, Dan. Let me throw one thing at you real quick about it. Purdue, 2022 Big Ten champions, question mark? <laughs> Boilermakers? Boilermakers, the 2022 Big Ten champions. Ah, uh, no, that, that's just, um, yeah, it, it's, I, I've never been a fan of vacating wins, but kind of piggybacking off the rest of what you said there, I, I think um, the timing of this was fortunate for Ohio State. Um, I'm not implying anything by that, but it was, there was definitely going to be a lot of scouting done this week at this game. Um, before the allegations came out that didn't happen. Now, I, I now and it makes that makes you wonder: was it just fortunate, or is there a reason why it came out last week? Who's to say? We have no. I, I have. I have no. Um, I don't either. No, so I, yeah, I, I have. I, I have no reason to just, just, just throw just, just throw it out. There, just, just uh, you know, you know when it's interesting. The, the other, the only other two teams in the conference that posed a threat. We're about to play each other, but a Michigan staffer had bought tickets to be on both sides of a stadium in that game, and that just so happens to be the week that this come out. I don't have any information on who reported this to the NCAA, how the NCAA found out a bit. I don't know how all of that came about, started, whatnot, but yes, like you said, uh, I think Ohio State and Penn State are certainly both glad that it came out before they played each other yes i i think it's definitely uh something they're happy about and it's curious of the timing but uh doesn't necessarily mean anything uh just just fortunate timing for ohio state and penn state when you talk about uh this was going to be a big scouting game for stallions as crew i i would think um with those two threats coming down the line so I, I do think that, you know, we're, we're kind of running a little short on time here in Ohio State basketball did have an exhibition game on Sunday that, you know, I kind of wanted to get to just a couple quick takeaways from, you know, a really great shooting night from the Buckeyes in that game. Uh, 55% um, from the field, 44% from three. And uh, the ball movement and the confidence shooting the ball is what really impressed me in that game after a sluggish start just in the first four minutes from the Buckeyes. Looked a little hesitant. Then once they kind of found their stroke and were willing to take a lot of shots early in the shot clock when they had the looks, really kind of showed a different offense than we saw last year from them for much of the year. Really had more of the feel of what was going on in the Big Ten tournament with Bruce Thornton running the show, he got going in that game uh, after Holtman, they ran an action for him early. Holtman tells him, hey, take the shot. And then after that, Bruce goes on to score 21 points, goes seven for nine from the field. So, uh, Dan, I don't know if the, I, I do want to give you the opportunity in case there was anything more you wanted to add on the Michigan situation and then what you saw from uh, the Dayton exhibition. No, I think, you know, we've covered the Michigan situation pretty well. I'm guessing it probably isn't going to be the only time we talk about that on the podcast because as more and more continues to come out of that situation, I'm sure it will have more takeaways on that in the future. You know, regarding the basketball exhibition, I'd, I'd be lying if I sat here and said that I watched every play of that 
Uh, Sundays are typically very busy day for me after football games as I work on our snap counts piece. I'm monitoring NFL games for our across the shield piece. And so I, I was only kind of half watching that game. But I mean, I think just for Ohio State to go into Dayton Arena and get a win, granted, an exhibition game win, it doesn't mean a whole lot. It seemed like Dayton was experimenting and playing deeper into its bench more than Ohio State was. And so all of those things had a factor on Ohio State winning the game. But nevertheless, I think for Ohio State to to play at the level it did against a team that is favored to win the Atlantic 10, a team that uh, could very well be an NCAA tournament team, I think it's an encouraging start for Ohio State. I think, you know, we'll learn more about this Ohio State team when the real games begin. But as you mentioned, Bruce Fortin had a good game. Uh, Jamison Battle looked good, which I think is important because, you know, we've seen in past years where a lot of the transfers who have come in for Ohio State haven't necessarily lived up to expectations. They haven't necessarily assimilated as well as expected. I think some of that is curbed by the fact that all three of the transfers this year have Power Five backgrounds. Two of them, Jamison Battle, Evan Mahaffey. Uh, coming directly from other Big Ten schools. And we saw both Battle and Mahaffey start in the game. Uh, Dale Bonner from Baylor uh, played a lot in the game as well. So I think just to see all three of those guys in the mix right away, Battle in particular scoring 15 points, that's an encouraging sign for those guys. Uh, I did think it was notable that there's been a lot of talk about that potential Felix Akpara, Zed Key pairing playing on the floor together we didn't really see that in the exhibition it was mostly you know Akpara started and then Key came in and they were just kind of rotating with one another doesn't mean we won't see it in in the games but actually matter I think we probably will see it occasionally but I also think you know it's at least one piece of evidence that you know Felix and Zed starting together and playing together all the time that's probably not going to be what that looks like there's probably going to be situations where they want to play Felix and Zed together, but I still think it's more likely that most of the time, just one of those guys is going to be on the court playing the five. And then, you know, Jamison Battle, Evan Mahaffey are certainly candidates to start at those other forward spots. I think as the year progresses, I think both Scotty Middleton and Devin Royal are going to be candidates to also play substantial roles at those forward spots. And I think they showed some good things in the exhibition as well. Yeah. Um, the thing with, the thing with me for always with Zed and Felix on the floor at the same time, four or five is a, it hurts your defensive versatility. Zed has slimmed down to try and have the capability to guard those stretch fours that now are all over college basketball, but still like just, he's not going to be the same out there as Jamison battle is. I don't think he's just not as good of an athlete guarding in space, guarding the perimeter. Uh, not to say Jamison is particularly excellent in that area, but not to say Jamison is particularly excellent in that area, but he does have more of an ability to do that than Zed does. Uh, also, you know, Jamison is night and day shooting from the perimeter to what Zed is. He showed it on Sunday going three for four from outside, six for seven overall from the field, but he's always been a good three point shooter, was at Minnesota. So I, I, I think that is just so much more valuable to have at the four. Now, Jamison can also play the three, but 
the lineups they showed were mostly him at the four, and then you have Evan Mahaffey, Scotty Middleton, Devin Royal kind of factoring in more at the three, and they give you a lot more of that speed, a lot more of that transition game, a lot more of that um, maybe ability to defend a guy who can dribble better than Jamison does. So I think their best lineups right now feature Jamison at the four and then Felix or Zed at the five, and they seem to lean a little heavier on Felix in the exhibition. I think that going into this year again, Overall, it's an exhibition game. A lot of experimentation out there. We'll learn a lot more when real basketball is played, but it was a great sign for the Ohio State offense, kind of continuing some of the momentum they built off that Big Ten tournament run, offensively moving the ball, scoring better, shooting better. Um, And then, you know, they still have things to work on, too, from that game. I think offensive rebounding opposing offensive rebounding your own defensive rebounding is a big concern for ohio state 14 to 5 for dayton in that area and something that hurt them last year uh that they're going to need to box out better going to need to clear the glass better uh but uh overall i think a very successful scrimmage for ohio state and promoting a great clause cause of mental health awareness yeah absolutely on that and i believe ohio state will be in uh, nashville this weekend to play a secret scrimmage, as they call it, against Clemson before uh, the real season begins November 6th at home at Value City Arena against Oakland. And so no shortage of stuff to talk about on on Real Pod Wednesdays this week for sure. And that's going to continue next week. Uh, we get, we're going to have the first college football playoff rankings out next week to talk about. We'll, of course, be talking about Everything we see up in Madison this week as Ohio State plays Wisconsin. And uh, we're less than two weeks away from the start of basketball season. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit more next week as well. So hope you join us again, Ben. Have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.